We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Welcome back to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week, we're going to be taking a look at John Carpenter's 1980 horror, I'm not going to say masterpiece, but uh, horror film The Fog, starring Adrian Barbeau, Janet Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis, and a bunch of other people, a bunch of other John Carpenter regulars. Here's a clip from The Fog. Stevie Wayne here, and let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today, and keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unnatural came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Years ago, between midnight and one, something evil came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Who's there? The fog. Antonio Bay has a curse on it. We're all cursed. There's no water getting here, but something awful cold, Pin. I think I'll go to Vancouver now. Where's the fog now? It should be right outside my door now. Oh, there's something different about this fog. Dan, stay away from the door! Someone listen to me! Get inside and lock your doors. Close your windows. There's something in the fog. from the fog. All right, that was a clip from John Carpenter's The Fog uh, from 1980. It was written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill and produced by Deborah Hill, his, uh, his longtime partner um, in product- film production anyway. I'm not going to say anything else. <laughs> but it also, again, it stars Adrian Barbeau, Jamie Lee Curtis, John Houseman, Janet Lee, um, Nancy Loomis, and like a bunch of John Carpenter regulars. Uh, All right, so Rick, this was your choice. We've already done one John Carpenter movie, In the Mouth of Madness, which I recommend anybody check out. That's a very fascinating movie. Uh, Why did you pick The Fog? Okay, so there's many reasons why I picked The Fog. First of all, I'm a huge fan of John Carpenter. He's one of my 10 favorite filmmakers of all time. I love the cast. I think it has some of the best camera work in any John Carpenter film. But the thing I love about The Fog, because there's a lot of my friends who don't really tend to like this movie, even though they're fans of the filmmaker. What I really like about The Fog is the screenplay. 
I, I think the script for starters is really original. Um, there's few, if any, films that have attempted to imitate anything quite like The Fog. Yes, I know there was a remake, uh, but I haven't seen the remake, but whatever. It's still a remake of the movie, so they're not doing anything original with that with that film, right? But The Fog is unique in how it features several stories within stories. And John Carpenter sets the tone right from the opening prologue with the legendary British character actor John Houseman reciting a campfire story about the fictional town Antonio Bay. And throughout the whole entire film, we get all of these characters who all have their own set of stories to tell. Like this movie is fascinated with the art of storytelling. And that's what I love about the movie because it really does a great job in helping to set the mood and the atmosphere and the tone of what is essentially like a ghost film. So I think like that is like my overall fascination with the movie because I watched this movie for the first time when I was young. It was one of those movies I was playing late at night. I had no idea who made the movie or what, you know what I mean? Like I didn't know anything about the movie. It was just like a young kid who was watching like movies when I should have been in bed. And I was just like automatically right from the opening scene, I was just fascinated. And so I, I, I just love how every character in the fog has their own story to tell and every story, no matter how big or small, it somehow ties into the overall bigger picture. They all have stories to tell, and it even opens up with a quote by Edgar Allan Poe. So that is the number one reason why I find this film so fascinating. Yeah, I think uh, really quickly I'll say what the main story of The Fog is for anybody else who, who hasn't seen it out there. It's basically about a town that's under siege by a mysterious fog in which the ghosts of dead sailors who were once part of a leper colony who were tricked into crashing their boat on some rocks and drowning to death by uh, by the town's original founders a hundred years ago, they uh, they come back to menace menace the people of the town on the hundredth anniversary. Um, joining us to talk about the fog today is Marty Allen, uh, writer over at Goomba Stomp. Who normally we've had Marty on our on our Nintendo podcast, but uh, he's here to talk about some John Carpenter movie with us. Yeah, guys, it's it's great to be here. Um, fun fun to make the leap from Nintendo to to John Carpenter. Maybe not such a far leap after all. Um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of John Carpenter's movies, and I relate pretty deeply to your experience, Rick, of having first experienced The Fog when I was younger and when I didn't actually understand what I was seeing a lot of the time. Um, I became sort of a fan of horror by having a bunch of older siblings who would show me lots of things whether or not they were appropriate for me and the fog was in that mix and then when i got older i sort of reverse engineered the fact that i was like many of these things i love and many of them are john carpenter that said the fog kind of existed on the periphery of that and i hadn't seen it in many years until you guys asked me to be on this podcast so i was really happy to revisit it um it was very evocative for me to bring me back into that that younger space but then, you know, see it through the lens of it's a director who I love deeply. The Thing is one of my probably one of my top three movies. Maybe uh, it's, it's right up there. Um, so, yeah, I'm so happy to be here to talk to you guys about it. Yeah, I came to The Fog uh, relatively late, I guess. Uh, it was it would have been in film school. But I had liked certain John Carpenter movies as a kid, like Big Trouble in Little China and The Thing. Uh, although I came to love The Thing even more as I got older. But um I started just exploring John Carpenter movies, and I had seen some by accident. I didn't know were his movies when I was a kid, like Starman and Christine. Um, but uh, I started just going through his whole 
filmography uh, because I liked some of his movies so much. I wanted to see everything that he had done. Uh, I really liked The Fog. I've always liked it. It is a simple movie. Like, Rick, you were talking about the script that's so well done. It is. It's such a John Carpenter script because <laughs> it meanders all over the place. But you're right. Everybody's got their little stories and he kind of just bounces from story to story. The main story is not very involved. It's kind of about getting to know these characters and just surrounding it with, like you said, that beautiful John Carpenter, early John Carpenter camera work. Uh, and Dean Kundi, who's the cinematographer who had also shot Halloween up. Uh, Man, I love the floating camera. I love John Carpenter's camera movements. They're just the best. Plus, he shoots in widescreen. And like you mentioned, that opening. I mean, we'll get to talk about the camera work later. But the, the things that I love about The Fog are have a lot to do with the visuals. Because I love his use of the foreground uh, with his camera work. And the, that opening is a perfect example of that with the watch that's uh, in the foreground and the kids' faces in the background as they're listening to this old man tell campfire stories, this old sailor. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a big fan of this movie. I think it's a really good John Carpenter popcorn movie. I'm, I'm not going to say it's his deepest movie ever. It's not. <laughs> you know, and it, it's not something that I would necessarily pour over and examine every little detail, minute detail, like I would the, for the thing. But uh, I, I considered, I, I went back and after watching this, I watched this twice this week. Plus, I watched, uh, went back and watched some John Carpenter movies from around the period that I hadn't seen in a while. In a while. So I rewatched Halloween and I rewatched Christine, uh, which are kind of bookend the fog. Um, and I had seen, I've seen the thing so many times that, uh, that I, don't, I know that movie by heart. I don't need to go back and rewatch it again. Um, but uh, yeah, just to sort of get a sense of John Carpenter, like how he was sort of doing things back then, it's it fits really neatly into that. Uh, just super entertaining, I think. It, it, it just it has all the the hallmarks of a great popcorn horror movie to me. I, I think the fog is a perfect template for a low budget horror film. Like I think any anybody who wants to be a filmmaker and specifically make horror films should watch a movie like The Fog. It has a very simple yet effective premise. It's practically devoid of bloodshed, which is a good thing if you're an independent filmmaker. Like yes, they had a million dollars to make this movie. But in Hollywood, a million dollars doesn't go you know, very far, right? Especially when you're casting like Janet Lee and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and you know, so on and so forth. It relies on suspense, not so much gore. And like the best ghost stories, the central theme of the film revolves around the sins of the past and how all too often society chooses to cover up those sins and turn a blind eye. So here, the priest, he says in, I think, a crucial line in the movie, he says... Uh, he's challenging the mayor who basically wants to continue on with the celebration of the town, right? It's like the 100-year anniversary, and let's forget about this uh, deeply disturbing secret that you just like discovered and uncovered, and we're just going to turn a blind eye and celebrate the town, even though all these people were like murdered 100 years ago and so on and so forth, right? The thing about The Fog is like John Carpenter seems to be telling us that like it's pointless to kind of, to kind of like hide the like the terrible things that happen in history because no matter what happens the truth will come out and there's a scene early on in the film which I think is thematically like it's probably like it's probably like it probably sums up the whole entire film but the priest he finds this journal which is hidden behind the brick wall right and so it's sort of like the brick wall itself conceals the journal and the journal it's telling the story the actual true history of what happened to this town and what they did in order to kill these these uh, sea pirates and they were lepers they lepers, were lepers yeah and steal their that gold wanted to move 
yeah. But, but I think that brick wall, like thematically, like me- the metaphor there is that it's it's like the many layers of lies and stories told to reconstruct and conceal the truth and and change history. So like, like there's just something about that brick wall and the fact that the journal is hidden behind the brick wall and the priest needs to break through the brick wall in order to in order to uncover the actual truth of what happened. And it just so happens that it was his ancestors, his granddad, who was one of the people who murdered these six or twelve. Uh, it was I don't know if it was six or twelve. I think it was six. Uh, there were six six conspirators, and they murdered a whole shipful of of lepers. Right, of le- and, but, of lepers. but but a lot of ghost stories are about that. It's about the sins of the past, and the ghosts, the spirits who are haunted, come back for revenge, and that's essentially what this is. But the way John Carpenter and Deborah Hill write the screenplay, it's like every single character within the movie has their own little story to tell, and therefore it just punches up the script and makes the movie more enjoyable to watch, and the character is just more more charismatic and more interesting to watch. And I mean, can we not forget about the fact that this movie has Janet Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Agent Barbeau yeah. all in the same movie, three strong female heroines who who I don't think ever have well, okay, there there is one scene where two of the three do share a, a specific scene, but most of them never actually cross paths throughout the whole entire film. Right. Uh, I don't know that uh, that Adrian Barbeau ever shares a scene with any of them. None of right? them. It's, no. But but Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis are in the end uh, together in the church. Yeah. But she's a voice on the air often, I guess. Uh, Adrian Barbeau is yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it's I mean it, it's. Kind of interesting because Janet Lee is, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis's real life mother. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting, and of her lineage with with Psycho, obviously. Uh, but he doesn't know who Janet Lee is. <laughs> yeah. Shower scene, Psycho. Go watch it. We talked about this when we reviewed in the Mouth of Madness. Like John Carpenter loves Howard Hawks, and he loves Alfred Hitchcock, and mm. so every single one of his films, he's either borrowing or stealing ideas from the from those filmmakers and or paying homage to those filmmakers i mean in this movie the the actual town itself the name of the town is taken from the town from the birds right and then of course you got janet lee who was a star of psycho alfred alfred hitchcock's masterpiece and of course you got jamie lee curtis like it's just and and there is that north by northwest scene which i only sort of like picked up on watching it again you know when she's on the rooftop and she slips on on the roof of the lighthouse Mm. Uh, and there's there's like there's some nods here and there to like howard hawks so like you know howard hawks and alfred hitchcock are two of my favorite filmmakers of all time and so it's no big surprise that every time i watch a john carpenter movie even if it's like the worst carpenter film i still somehow end up loving all of john carpenter's movies except for maybe one which is ghost of mars well yeah ghost Mars is absolutely awful i tried to watch that one as well but i could not i couldn't get more than 10 minutes into it um no i mean you know he likes howard hawks because of course the thing was playing on the tv um in halloween uh yeah he, he's he has a, it, I, well, you also brought up what i think is another uh, another great reference because you mentioned the poe quote at the very the edgar Allan poe quote at the very beginning and the book being uh walled up you know behind concrete is it evokes the imagery from the cask of amontillado uh, so there's there's all sorts of little weird things that can that can tie in together. John Carpenter again, he, he he did not get enough credit back in the day. I think people have started to give him his due uh, lately, in the, over the last few years. But I think back in the day, he was just a very very clever low budget filmmaker. Um, and yeah, like like the way that it relies on that movie. This movie relies completely on suspense, and it has some of the best jump scares though. 
in any movie, I think. And I think they would work like gangbusters for a modern movie audience. But uh, yeah, just great jump scares. Thank you. Like, I was watching this movie, and I'm like, if I was watching this movie at the theater on a big screen with the, you know, the loud sound, with a, you know, surrounded by hundreds of people, I think I would jump out of my seat. The jump scares are amazing. And you talk about him being an underrated filmmaker. There's that famous quote from him from the documentary where he says, in France, I'm considered an auteur. In Germany, I'm considered a filmmaker. In the UK, I'm a genre film director. But in the USA, I'm a bum. <laughs> like, I love that quote. <laughs> I know. And, you know. <laughs> He's my kind of bum. <laughs> you, you know, I, I, what can you say? He's, he's been reappraised since then, thank God. I think a lot of, you know, we've all sort of discovered him when we were younger. And a lot of other filmmakers, you know, have paid homage to him now, uh, lately anyway. Uh, yeah, I, and he makes his, his his token appearance too. He's in pretty much like Hitchcock. He usually has a cameo in all of his movies, and he's this is one of the bigger ones, more noticeable ones. He's right there at the very beginning, uh, playing I can't remember what the Ned I think or something like that. The the handyman at the church. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, th- I think he was mortified by his own appearance. Actually, he really did not like it. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah this is uh, those those jump scares what john carpenter even more so than halloween like halloween is all about just total creepiness it's usually about looking at michael myers staring at you right <laughs> and then disappearing suddenly uh, but it's always about where michael myers is in the frame and trying to find him and knowing that he's watching you from somewhere and that's what provides attention in that movie in this one he, he manufactured some great stuff. He actually got me, Rick, because I hadn't seen this movie in a little while. And the scene where they're in the boat and Jamie Lee Curtis and um, oh, his, his name is Nick, right? They're the character's name. Um, they're they're sort of casually talking and they're they're looking at this beer and he's saying, oh, it's full of salt water. And how did this all happen? And there's a dead man aboard. Eyes, you know, poked out. And this locker, it shows that the handle of this locker is starting to come undone. And then all of a sudden, the locker pops open. And, and it scares Jamie Lee Curtis and, you know, whatever. And, of course, I'm thinking, well, that's the jump scare. But sure enough, Carpenter knows that you're expecting that to be the jump scare. He lets the tension die away. And then the real jump scare happens when the body falls on top of her. <laughs> and it got me right there. I got to admit, did not expect that to happen. No, it I, got me, too. It got me, too. That, that, it's a good scene. It's a really good scene. I said this before on the podcast, and I'll say it again. John Carpenter's run of directing movies from 1978 to about 1997 is the greatest of any genre filmmaker in North America. Where did you end that? With which well, film? I would say like 1978, early Carpenter, like Dark Star, Dark Star, Halloween, all the way up until In the Mouth of Madness. Cool. You can extend it a bit. like You can actually go about 20 years, but I would say at least 18 years of this guy making movies like back to back back to back it was always a great film like sure some of these films had flaws but the only genre filmmaker who did a better job was mario bava but he's an italian filmmaker but apart from mario bava i can't think of any genre filmmaker who made back to back movie for like almost two decades that was just like so good and and the thing about john carpenter kind of like mario bava is he can make a great movie no matter what the budget. Like, he always made his movies look ten times bigger than the actual budget. And you see it here with The Fog, too, because he he and the cinematographer, they actually decided to shoot big. And a lot of independent filmmakers, they would choose to shoot 
small and they would they would tend to use mostly close-ups and medium shots and shoot in indoors because they they would want to mask the fact that they don't have a big budget but here like patrick said they use the anamorphic 2 by 35 by 1 format and there's these gorgeous widescreen shots, for example, of the lighthouse and the outside of the lighthouse or the beach or the actual bay. The way he films it and the way he composes the shots and keeps everyone in frame, it actually makes the picture look like it has 10 times the budget. So it's, it's weird because he knows how to use the spacing and the backgrounds and the foreground and the middle ground to just create the sense of scale and and again like the movie does not look cheap like like a million dollars to us is a lot of money but when you have a million dollars and you're trying to make a hollywood film it doesn't go very far like some movies cost like 50 million and more right and and here it feels like more expansive and i just i don't know man i know there's a, i know we have to give credit to dean kundi is it pronounced kundi or kundi i have no idea <laughs> whatever <laughs> but it's one of those two <laughs> the legendary cinematographer everybody knows he is um we have to give him some credit too but it was john carpenter's decision to shoot that way because he did so also with like most of his films including halloween and this is also the first movie where he really had to use special effects right because like in halloween there's no special effects no an assault on precinct 13 nothing really there i mean not the kind of not the kind of effects that you're talking about with the fog anyway Right, but the special effects itself is done really well. The fog effects, I think, are pretty much like perfect because they, 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 the the fog itself was filmed in camera using a real fog machine. And from my understanding, a lot of the shots they had to run the shot backwards, like in reverse, in post production because they needed the fog to go in, in a specific direction. But it would only like, you know what I mean? Like, so they had to like run it in reverse. Mm-hmm. And and so that's kind of like brilliant on the part of like John Carpenter, but it just looks great. And not only do does the actual fog itself look great, but because there's so much fog in in the movie, the actual fog helps mask and hide anything that would make the picture look flawed or it really helps with the lepers, with the leper uh ghosts <laughs> because they, 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 there was the pen t potential for them to look absolutely corny, but instead they're completely masked and they're always in silhouette and they are creepy as hell, uh, especially when their eyes start glowing red, which again is a nice effect that's, that's only done later. He saves that till towards the end. But man, I think they're an absolute, they're, they're just a continuation of what he was doing with Michael Myers, where the, the way that they just sort of stand sometimes or they're slowly walking, but there's more of them and they can get in anywhere. Uh, I, uh, I I think it's an effect that actually absolutely works. But I, I want to stress this. I'm so glad you brought up the widescreen format because it's one of the most noticeable things about this movie. How he goes big, man, and it makes it gives the town a real personality. It also makes it seem like a small town because sometimes when people shoot in close up, you don't really get a sense of the scale of the town. But he does show you Main Street. And you can tell that it's a small town because of how big the main street is. And it's something, like you said, he did in Halloween as well. He walks around, he walked around the streets of, of uh, what was, I can't remember what that city was called, but um, Haddonfield, right? He, he walks around the streets of Haddonfield in Halloween and it sort of gives you an idea of what that town is like and how small it really is. And he does a similar thing here, but he also shows the, the, the vistas out on the coast of the you know cars driving against the cliffs and, like you said, the lighthouse. And you get a sense of the scale and how kind of alone this town is. It's almost like they're 
out there on their own. They they could be Alaska for all anybody knows because this town isn't there, there's nothing really around them. Uh, and I love that he does that. I honestly think that this is a better looking film than Halloween. Like Halloween was groundbreaking for its time and it influenced and inspired so many filmmakers moving forward. But this movie just is gorgeous, like gorgeous. Like you think of the shot when it's at the very top of the staircase outside of the lighthouse looking down and there's like 275 steps that she needs to like climb just that one specific shot. Like, again, it's just like the, the fact that he uses these wide shots. It's just it, it's just it looks gorgeous. And, and the fog itself, like how often have we seen fog? in a horror movie like it's a staple in horror movies right but how often have we seen fog itself become an actual character or feel like a character and here the fog itself is a metaphor for our capacity to obscure or conceal the truth i mean it's sort of like brilliant the way he uses fog as a metaphor and again it's it's like the way the fog itself will fill the frame and 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 mask like you said like mask the actual um the, the zombie like sea pirates who who are shown mostly in silhouette it, it's just brilliant yeah no i i really really enjoyed uh watching this movie it's um it's a unique john carpenter movie i'm fascinated by your immediate takeaway rick that you so quickly went to lauding the screenplay because for me i mean my biggest takeaway is that it's beautiful and it's very carpenter um, as you say, I love the way that this movie looks. I absolutely, I mean, it's some of his best use of, of, of light and color. Um, there's just, there's just so many stunning compositions that he has on the screen, uh, particularly in the opening sequence. I love it so much. Um, and I do like a lot of the roots of the story and I like the fact that it's just a great big ghost story, but I do feel like the plot sort of goes wonky um in the middle and it's it's what fe it feels like it should be a very simple straight through line and you're hard pressed to be like wait there are how many lepers and who are the descendants so there are i but i i really like what you're saying about like thinking about it in terms of how there are all these different characters who all have their own stories that's a that's a very cool perspective but my takeaway was like about like midway through when the action really escalated i was like wait 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 why are we so upset about the fog right now but at the same time you know it's a ghost story and it was fabulous i mean i loved it honestly i was really really glad for a reason to watch it and the the main takeaway was i really enjoyed watching this movie i i was going to talk about the third act after the break when we talk about things we would want to change sorry to get ahead I, of I, I i do think the big flaws in this movie come in the third act but I actually want to ask you, Marty, about the music, because you are mm. a musician, you're in a band, and I think this is one of Carpenter's best soundtracks. Um, I'm wondering what you think of the music as compared to Halloween, because Halloween, like everybody knows the, the main theme song, for example, for Halloween. But in my eyes or in my ears or in my opinion, this is a better soundtrack. Yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 at the least I'm so I'm a huge fan of John Carpenter's music in his films and as a um, just like a musician on his own, too. Um, I love the uh, style that he creates, the synthesizers abutting uh, real pianos. And I think that The Fog is one of the finest examples of him doing it. Um, yeah, I 
love the soundtrack and I love the way that the soundtrack interacts with the film that he created. I think it's awesome. Um, particularly the opening is just so, so good. Um, yeah, I love that whole. The, I love the I love the ghost story opening in, in on the beach, but then I also love the the credits opening tremendously. It, it seems like an extension of where he was going with Halloween, as far as the soundtrack goes. It seems like he he's evolving a little bit. It's a richer score than Halloween's is. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's not quite as iconic, you know. Like I can't like quite conjure it uh, note for note, but it's uh, deeply evocative for the movie that it was scoring. Um, but but is it not has iconic as halloween because he doesn't necessarily have one specific song that repeats throughout the whole entire film you see what i'm saying here yeah of course i mean but that's you know it's a motif you know that's like um you know jaws is memorable for the same reason i guess right um like it's you know halloween has has that motif to it that is is unforgettable and yeah i mean i'm I'm not deriding remotely the work that he did in the fog i think it's also excellent and probably more sophisticated um just different but also very very good yeah, it definitely seems more sophisticated to me, and I kind of like it for that. I mean, in Halloween, of course, you know, you you end up hearing that that score so often, that motif so often, that it, it can kind of uh, lose its effectiveness. At least it does for me sometimes, even though it, it's still a nice catchy score, like catchy motif. Um, but yeah, I, I, as far as the the script goes, I know what Rick's talking about. Like, there there's something. This does not have a traditional three act structure in how the characters play out. Uh, it sort of does, sort of, as far as the main plot, but there really isn't enough of a main plot for it to need three acts. So <laughs> they're yeah. very, the acts are very quick, quickly resolved, I guess. Is and it's there, is there a lead? <laughs> you know, it's like, is there uh, a lead to this? No, <laughs> no, it's an ensemble thing, but yeah. that's kind of what it, it's like. Instead of a haunted house, it's a haunted town. So instead of like several characters trapped in a house, they're all trapped in this town. And but he's building characters, and that's what helps his sus- suspense pay off later. I think he understands a lot more than than some modern horror filmmakers that the lore isn't what's scary. What's scary is when we have characters that we like that are potentially in danger. And John Carpenter creates characters first. That's why so much of the first part of this movie is spent developing these personalities. And then the last part of the movie the third act which again we we can get to that and i agree carpenter usually his third acts are his weakest parts of his movies um and the thing is like you know the thing is no exception and uh christine is no exception and i would say that you know even well i would even argue that halloween is not an exception but um yeah it, it is a little bit weaker but it is that's how he can sort of have this thing ultimately work have the third act ultimately work because we do care about these people as characters if you ever listen to the podcast on a regular basis i always talk about the look of films it's the first thing i notice like first and foremost is the cinematography the lighting the camera shots the compositions but the reason why i mentioned the script first when i started the podcast is because if you look at a movie like it follows which is clearly takes inspiration from a movie like halloween everything from like the camera shots the compositions the widescreen format etc etc I do not remember a specific scene from It Follows or the characters. You know what I mean? So, like, I remember watching the movie and liking the movie and thinking it's gorgeous and I love the cinematography, but I don't actually remember the movie. Nothing stands out. In this movie, 
I remember every character. Like, and again, you mentioned like the script, like how unique is it that the two quote unquote heroes, Jamie Lee Curtis's character and the character play that Adrian Barbeau plays, they never meet. The fact that Adrian Barbeau plays a local DJ who spends the majority of the film in the lighthouse, which just so happens to be a radio station, which is like the coolest thing in the world. You know what I mean? And and she has to rely on her radio show to try to get a message out to anyone in the town who might happen to be listening to her show to head over to her house in order to save her son. That's like brilliant. That's like fantastic. It's like it's like a great way to build suspense in any horror film because she is helpless. Like she can only rely on her radio show and in and, and hoping that someone's listening to her show that can make their way to her house, her home and save her her son. Like Stuff like that to me is just amazing, and and in retrospect, like maybe it's not as special now, but when this movie came out in 1980, the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis and her mom Janet Lee, the original uh, screen queen, you know, the original like star of the original quote unquote like slasher film, are in the same movie is is amazing. Uh, there's so many, and Tom Atkins, like I, I was like a huge, I'm st- I still am, I'm a huge fan of Night of the Creeps, and I, I actually watched Night of the Creeps before I ever saw The Fog. And so when I saw him in this movie, I was like, oh, that's the guy from that, that, the other movie that I really like. There's so many things to love about this movie. Uh, and, and Adrian Barbeau, her character, I mean, I think she's one of the most interesting characters in any, in any horror film. Like, I, I love the fact that she's a DJ. I love the fact that she's, like, a single mom. I, I love, I, I just, I love, I, I feel like she's such a strong character, even though we don't, quote unquote, see her kicking ass. Or know everything about her, right? Because in a lesser movie, they had to explain why she's a single mom. And we see photos of her and her husband, but is he dead? Are they divorced? What happened there? I don't really know. And he just leaves it a complete mystery. And then you sort of see little interactions with her kid, but they don't go into like any deep-seated problems that the two of them are having that you know she needs to overcome. Things are just sort of hinted at as to her character. And like the other things never really pay off in a way that a that a like I said, a lesser movie would have, like her relationship with the weatherman um, that she has, that the DJ has, um, and it's over the phone. And you never really a lesser movie would have those two somehow resolve this sort of flirtation and and romance. They'd meet at some point. There would be some reason, some half baked reason for them to meet, but he never really does that. Um, the weatherman is played by Charles Cyphers from he was the sheriff in Halloween. Um, he bites the dust long before well before they they ever get a chance to meet but she kind of resolves it over the phone anyway she she basically says she's never going to ever meet him uh and it doesn't really matter never turns into anything tragic and they don't try to do anything they they don't try to 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 wring some faux emotion out of the audience via this thing it more provides insight into her character the way that she handles this guy over the phone is kind of mysterious it's kind of interesting it makes her interesting because you can't really put a pin in her uh and i kind of like that that there's a lot of things in this movie that you can't really put a pin in and that makes you sort of invested in these characters more yeah i mean that hits on uh, a piece of what carpenter does so so beautifully in this movie in particular and i mean we were kind of talking around it a little bit is just he has details there are all of these little little character details and you can really sink your teeth into them and they leave a mark you know uh, and it, it circles me back around to what we were saying earlier um about you know discovering john carpenter when we were younger and you know i'm seeing all these films that he made when i was a kid 
And I'm not realizing that they're having this impact on me. And then I kind of like reverse engineer as an adult. And uh, there's just something special about what he does as a filmmaker. And it's the totality of what he does, too. You know, there is the sound, there is the visuals, but there are just these character details, these moments. And um, yeah, they stick with you in a way that is uh, pretty profound. And I just love what he does. I think we would have to give credit to Deborah Hill because I'm, I'm sure it helps that he's writing the script with a woman. Because when we go back to speaking of the character Stevie Wayne, Stevie Wayne, like, first of all, the name Stevie, Stevie is like a, a guy's name, right? So they give the central character a guy's name. She works in a radio station as a DJ, which back in the 80s, like nowadays, like there's, there's a lot of like, you know, female DJs. But back in the days, it, it wasn't as common. She's also, like, working in a lighthouse. Everything about her, given that this was made in the 1980s, like, she has these tropes that you would normally see in male protagonists, not a female protagonist. And again, she's single. She's, like, a single parent. She's still sexy. She rejects the, the flirtation of all the men who are hitting on her. She's, like, the hero. Like, I love how her character is so unique compared to all of the heroines that we would usually see in movies back in the days who would normally, let's face it, be a damsel in distress. Like even, even um, a final girl in a horror film, like a slasher film, like Jamie Lee Curtis in, in Halloween, they spend the majority of the, the running time of a movie running away from the threat, like the villain. And in this case, she's, she's actually trying to do the opposite. She's trying to run towards the problem she just can't because she, she she happens to be stuck in in the lighthouse there's just something fascinating about the screenplay like i'm telling you guys this this movie actually has a great script yeah and she also feels a sense of duty towards the town so she sticks in the lighthouse and stays in the radio so that she can tell people which direction the fog is moving because from her vantage point she can oversee the entire town and thus she could actually give detailed blow by blow accounts of what street the fog is going down. So when the, when everybody's listening on the radio, they know exactly where to go. And she tells them to go to the church because that's the one place that the fog hasn't gotten to yet. And that's ultimately where all the characters meet up because they've been listening to her on the radio. So in a sense, she, she's she's saving people while she's doing that, even though she can't save her own son at the time. Yeah, it, it is a really good. I, I think it's a really good and interesting script, especially like you say, for, for a genre movie, for a low budget genre movie. It's a really good script because it's a it's pretty efficient and that's one thing that you could always describe john carpenter as is efficient the movie was sort of like a hit like it wasn't like a huge hit like a big hit like halloween but it made 47 million at the box office and it only cost a million to make so it's like 200 times its budget um what i find interesting and i'm sure you guys heard about this is the fact that a good portion of this film was shot after the fact like they had actually finished they had wrapped up shooting they went into the editing room they had edited the film john carpenter did not like the end result and so they decided to go back and shoot a, bu a bunch more scenes which includes a lot of the, the graphic and gory scenes so I, I would be curious to see what the original edit would look like but i can't imagine this movie being shorter because you want to talk about sharp editing the movie's only 89 minutes long Oh, yeah, it's perfect length, perfect length Oh yeah, <laughs> for, for a movie like this. It doesn't have enough story to go any longer than this, uh, it, but, it, but it gets the point across. I'd kind of love to see that weirder cut that doesn't have as much violence or as much explanation. You the know? original cut also doesn't have the prologue. Yeah, I know. And, and I think that it could have this sort of interesting, creeping 
curiosity to it if it didn't explain itself and didn't have as much violence. Um, but I, I, I can understand why they felt like they needed to add a bit of meat to the bone, for sure. It's only 90 minutes. I feel like John Carpenter written movies should always come with a prologue, just like big, they, the studio forced him to have one in front of Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> yeah. Because you need to know what the hell's going on. <laughs> uh, it's like having the scrawl in Star Wars. It's like, okay, give us something here. Because uh, you're going to have some weird ideas and we sort of need a little bit of grounding. Uh, I, I, it's, it's a perfect way to start that movie because we really do need it. It's, it's a ghost story and he tells a ghost story and sets the tone perfectly. Yeah, exactly. I loved this prologue. I mean, it's like a Tales from the Crypt style prologue. It's really very, very perfect. You know you're in a ghost story because you're sitting around the campfire. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem with the movie when it came out is that it had come out after Halloween. So uh, given the fact that it stars Jamie Lee Curtis, it's directed by John Carpenter, the director of Halloween, I think a lot of people might have expected more of a slasher film. And it's really like this moody, atmospheric ghost tale about these sea pirates who come back for revenge. It's completely different. So I, I could understand why people like, I mean, it didn't get a bad reputation. It got pretty, you know, fair reviews. But it, I think I think it really developed a cult following because of home video. And it was only later in, in like the late 80s that people started looking back at the fog and and considering it like one of John Carpenter's better films. Yeah, and it is. It's it's a great example of popcorn John Carpenter. I mean, that that's kind of what it is. This will never be considered one of his deepest movies. Um, like I say, I'm not going to pour over every little detail of it, but it it works so well just on a purely entertaining level, and that's that's what it does. It's it's efficient horror, uh, low budget horror, and it works. It, it's just Carpenter gets the beats. He knows to create a suspenseful scene, and I'm sure we'll, when we get to it, we'll talk about our favorite ones. But uh, yeah, it's it's funny to think of so much going wrong that he had to you know shoot a third of the movie, reshoot a third of the movie. But because uh, for me, this movie really, really works, and I'd love to see the the train wreck that he supposedly had on his hands. Because um, this one, this one seems like it, it, it's under like he's it's a skilled hand on the helm. You know what I mean? Like that's what it feels like. It just feels like you're being guided along perfectly by this guy who knows exactly what he wants to do so that that is very curious that that's the way the production went uh all right with that um we're gonna take a quick break we're gonna play another clip from the fog and when we come back we'll answer our five questions here's another clip Eleven fifty-five, almost midnight. Enough time for one more story. One more story before twelve, just to keep us warm. In five minutes, it'll be the twenty-first of April. One hundred years ago, on the twenty-first of April. Out in the waters around Spivey Point, a small clipper ship drew toward land. Suddenly, out of the night, the fog rolled in. For a moment, they could see nothing, not a foot ahead of them. And then they 
saw a light. My God, it was a fire burning on the shore, strong enough to penetrate the swirling mist. We steered a course toward the light, but it was a campfire like this one. The ship crashed against the rocks. The hull sheared in two. The mast snapped like a twig. And the wreckage sank with all the men aboard. At the bottom of the sea lay the Elizabeth Dane with her crew, their lungs filled with salt water, their eyes open and staring into the darkness. And above, as suddenly as it had come, fog lifted, receded back across the ocean, and never came again. All right, that was another clip from 1980's The Fog, directed by John Carpenter, written by Deborah Hill and John Carpenter. All right, so uh, this is the portion of the podcast, Marty, uh, where Rick and I basically ask some questions about uh, the movie. Uh, We always like to start off with something very positive. So the first question is, what was your favorite scene from The Fog? Oh, I get to answer first? You do. Um, oh, man, that's uh, a lot of pressure. Um, there, Well, I alluded to what I was thinking of as my favorite scene, but I don't know if it counts so much as a scene, which is just the, the sprawling open. But I'm going to re- I'm, I'm actually I'm revising that. And I, I think it's a tough call, but I think that my favorite scene is the uh, the death of uh, Mrs. Um, Cobritz, Cobritz, the the nanny. Um, that one, that one was was really uh, just really hit home for me. I uh, enjoyed the setup. I loved the kid in that scene, um, and I love that they mercilessly <laughs> killed this little old lady by pulling her into the fog. And I just um, felt like that was a real classic horror scene. So. That that I think that that's my favorite. Uh, Rick, do you want to go next or do you want to go last? Oh man, I don't know. There's so many good scenes. I think I think I I'm might gonna... steal your scene. Well, he... <laughs> okay. So you know what? You know what? Go ahead. I'll go last. Okay, maybe this won't be your favorite scene, but uh, for me, the scene that gets me every both times I watched this, I just it was like I probably had a big grin on my face. It's the hospital scene. Where Jamie Lee Curtis is in the room with the the corpse and uh, Nick, and it goes outside with the the doctor to talk about stuff. And the way Carpenter constructs that scene gets me every time, even though I know exactly what's going to happen that the, the corpse is just going to fall over. But but I still, man, is that a, a suspenseful scene for me? It just a, a dreadful scene. It just shows how well Carpenter can make something out of nothing. Just having cutting back and forth between Jamie Lee Curtis and the body under the sheet, it just like he goes back and forth and back and forth and it just keeps building and building and building until that leg comes down uh well there's a little bit of movement actually the first thing you see is a little bit of movement but um then that leg comes down it's like oh my god yeah i love that i love that scene there's not a whole lot going on there story-wise or even character-wise but for me it's about the filmmaking that scene to me is is john Carver's suspense at its best okay so this this is tough because i i think there's so many good scenes but I'm actually like that would probably be my third favorite. My second favorite would be the opening because it really sets the mood and tone of the film. And I love ghost stories and camp and stories around the campfire. 
But I think um I think my favorite scene is when when Stevie phones home and she's trying to get her son out of the house and she's trying to warn her her you know the son and the babysitter and cuz cuz like that scene in itself is it's it's written and constructed like a typical slasher film. Like you think of like Scream or Halloween where someone gets a phone call and they warn someone of the killer that's entering the house. It's the exact same thing. Like the 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 ghost pirates in this case are entering the house and it's like it's, it's I, I guess it's the scene that you pick marty because the the babysitter it's a scene in which the babysitter does die but it's it's it, it's, it's also because of the way he, uh it, it cuts back and forth between the lighthouse and what's happening inside the actual house like her home and also it, uh tom atkins and jamie lee curtis are heading t- to the house in order to save the boy so there's three different actions happening at the same time, and they cut between those three specific sets of characters who very rarely, if ever, meet throughout the whole entire film. And it just connects the Jamie Lee Curtis character in a way to Agent Bar- Barbeau's character, even though technically they never meet. Because mm-hmm. at least it meets her son. And you had just gone through that kind of tense moment where Agent Barbeau is trying to start her generator, too, um, in order to keep the power on uh, so that she can use the radio to warn people <laughs> yeah that, that it, it is a good scene and, and again that it uses a lot of carpet carpenter uses a lot of his widescreen in that scene so you see objects in the foreground and background you know with the kids sitting on the stairs and the babysitter framed against the doorway um yeah he uses a lot of that for kind of to make you uneasy um objects sort of placed all over the room kind of very strange um all right so with that being said if there was one thing about Hall- or uh, sorry, not Halloween. If there was one thing about the fog that you could change, Marty, what would it be? Oh well, I feel like I already tipped my hand a little, a little bit there. Um, well, let me see if I can rethink it or reframe it. I mean, it's funny because I, I just, I felt like there was. It's a really fun, really straightforward plot that kind of overcomplicates itself, and I just wish that there was a little bit of streamlining that happened. Um, in terms of the what or the why of it. Uh, I don't know exactly how to put my finger on it. There's kind of an escalation that happens. It's funny, the escalation happens actually right in that scene that Rick and I both like when Adrian Barbeau's character gets so hysterically worried. Um, and so obviously the result of that was very positive for us. But you know, her, her sudden level of fear it doesn't seem like it aligns with all of the kind of the stakes that have brought it there. So there's just like these, kind. Of, I guess I, I, my, my one thing I would change is the second to third act plot moves. If that's the, I don't know if that's too specific to say that, but um, you know, it just felt a little wonky in the, in the, in the, in the late middle to me. Well, you know, at that point she had already uh, been through the weatherman's death. So she was aware that there was, that something in the fog was actually killing people. And she uh, saw that the fog was creeping towards her home. I know. I just didn't feel like it landed right, but I hear you. <laughs> yeah, no, I. The whole third act uh, is kind of weak, and it can be in a lot of John Carpenter movies because it almost feels like he's trying to. It's the foregone conclusion kind of thing, and he's trying to just get to the get to the end and you know go through. Sometimes it can feel like he's going through the motions, and he's not quite as creative as he is in the first two thirds of a movie. Uh, for me, the thing that I would change would be the absolute end which is the fake out where the, <laughs> the the monsters don't kill the priest even though he asks them to they just 
take the cross, the gold cross, and go, which I guess was belted down from all their coins and made into this like cross that that is a slap in the face to all the lepers that died uh, <laughs> with everybody stealing their gold. But uh, I don't see the point in the fake out. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because then they just come back and kill him anyway. Like, why did they just kill him right there? They needed the sixth person. He offers himself as the sixth person. He's right there. They're they're right there. But then they recede and only to come back like two minutes later and kill him anyway when he's alone. So I didn't think it needed that. I thought that was kind of like a little little cheapness that they were going to have some kind of shock ending. They could have done something else uh, instead of just having them come right back and kill him when they could have done that easily before anyway and then left. Um, yeah, anyway, that's the one thing that I would change. I would change the very end just a little bit. I would come up, if you want to have that that shock ending, uh, I would I would have come up with something slightly different. Same here. I mean, for me, my problem with the movie all, all lies in the third act. I think the third act is weak, and I think the ending is... It's not necessary, and it doesn't make sense, like you said. I, I don't understand the point in having the fake out. And I'm wondering if that's one of the things that they went back and reshot and added into the movie because they felt they needed some sort of like twist ending and more gore. I'm not entirely sure. But to me, that's the one thing I would for sure change. Yeah, it just it doesn't really have any place in it. And again, when he, when he makes such a point of offering himself, well, then, I mean, why not just do it? Or why do it later? It, it's not like you're more menacing coming back and doing it later. <laughs> I don't know because he already offered himself. So, <laughs> yeah, but um, but I I, I kind of feel like you're right. Like I I think like first of all, I, I've been recording this sort of cinema podcast for like what ten years now, and I would say nine out of ten times we always complain about the third act in in a movie. Like it just it's not just John Carpenter. It's most movies. I think what happens is when you get to the third act you're running out of time to tell a story. And a lot of times everything feels rushed to get to the end. And here it doesn't necessarily feel rushed. It just feels like they either ran out of ideas or ran out of budget or ran out of like shooting time. Yeah. And it, the visuals take a, a noticeable hit too. Uh, it, it's like he didn't have the creativity with his visuals in that last third that he did. Maybe not the last third, but especially the last sequence when they finally get to the church, it, it seems more standard, right? And I, I noticed the same thing with Christine that, that that movie towards the end, the great movie, like and visually just so cool and inventive uh, all the way through until you get to the last showdown, and then it sort of becomes like going through the motions, and Carpenter kind of doesn't maybe know visually what to do with it anymore. Um, that happens even in the thing. Now, if it wasn't for the knockout ending of the thing. I think like you could you could argue that the ending of the thing is kind of just sort of going through the motions as well, but um, but then it has that really cool its its little twist hits home really really well. This movies did not, so I think that's the that's the difference there. Uh, all right, so Marty, who would you say is the MVP of the fog? Who is the person most directly responsible for its success? Oh my, that's how we put it. The that's MVP right. of the of the fog, most most responsible for its success. Um, do I have to choose a person? Not necessarily. What did you have in mind? Um, I wanted to nominate the lighthouse. <laughs> really? I just love the lighthouse as this You're gonna kind have of the, You're the, gonna have the, to explain that one, Marty. <laughs> well, I, I found it to be um, 
just so it's a, it's such a cool center point for the film. I, I love the way that they radiate her voice out across the story. I think it was just such an awesome device. And then the lighthouse itself, once you get inside it, it is just so intriguing as a set. And I mean, that scene when she gets attacked in the lighthouse um, is, you know, that's also one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, yeah, I mean, it felt like a character to me. It was really um, important and a big part of it. They kept returning to it. When you finally saw the lighthouse getting threatened, that was when I actually felt like the fog was like really threatening the town. Um, so yeah, I guess I'll, I'll stand by my guns. I'll take questions though. <laughs> so here's the thing. I swear to God, I'm not copying you. I was going to say the exact same thing and I'll tell you why. Okay, so first of all, on my street, at the end of the street, there's a lighthouse. And I swear to God, there's been about 12 times throughout my life that we've tried to shoot a short film that revolved around The Lighthouse, which just so happens to be a short horror film. I've always been fascinated with A Lighthouse because I live on the street and grew up on the street. And when we started recording the uh, Sorted Cinema podcast, which initially originally was called Sound on Sight, the Sound on Sight podcast, we recorded at this radio station and we were making a short film. We entered this contest and it was one of those contests where you have like three days, like an entire weekend to write a film, film it and edit it, right? It was part of this like, three-day contest to make a short film. And so we tried to do the exact same thing inspired by The Fog where we tried to make a short film that revolved around a radio station inside a lighthouse. There's something about a radio station and a lighthouse and combining a radio station and a lighthouse like to me is just amazing because like yeah. i've always wanted to make a horror film that revolved around a dj who has to warn people through his radio show and then in this film they take it a step further because the radio station just so happens to be in the lighthouse but the lighthouse in itself it represents the entire town it oversees the entire town it's it's symbolic in itself it, it's it's it also makes the picture look 10 times more expensive i, I love the the shooting around it i like the way I, just everything about it, like just the way it looks what it represents in this movie um I totally agree. Like, I, I think that if, if, if it was just a radio station, like anywhere else, or like a, a typical normal radio station, it would lose its charm. There's just something about it being a lighthouse. And the fact that the threat, the, the fog, the, the, the ghostly seamen who used to be lepers who were killed like a hundred years prior, they, they come from the sea. Like I, there's just something so cool about it. And again, it all comes down to the screenplay. The fact that they wrote that in the script is genius. Well, it, it, it ties in. I mean, obviously, the lepers were killed because they were faked out by a bonfire that they were hoping probably was, uh, you know, a, a lighthouse. Lighthouses are designed to warn. That's what their whole purpose is, to warn sailors away from the shore and the rocks, especially if there is, you know, a fog and they, they cannot, cannot see. So yeah, it makes a, it makes thematic sense that, I mean, it's, it's very cool. No, no doubt about it. Uh, the location didn't strike me quite as hard as it did you guys. I think it's a very cool location and a very cool idea. Um, and it also gives them a good, you know, vantage point to look down in the town. But obviously, I mean, look, obviously I'm going to pick John Carpenter in this one because for me it is the visuals that, that really make this movie, especially through the first two-thirds, and the direction. It's not just the visuals. It's the direction. Um, I, I, 
I really like the way that he directs his, his actors in his scenes and how he directs the, the, the tense scenes. What really works for me, what makes this movie continue to be entertaining for me to watch is the scare moments. And I think he does the scare moments so well. I, uh, and we're going to talk about this in just a little bit about whether we think it holds up. But it, it is one of those movies that I think would play, will play and continue to play to people and continue to get them every single time if they have not seen it, if they're not expecting it, especially. So, yeah, I, to me, it's obviously it's going to be Carpenter just because I think he, he nails the the scare moments so I mean, well. Uh, all right. So, no, but but here's the thing. It was a given that someone was going to say Carpenter. So for yeah, me yeah. and for Marty to say the lighthouse, it's it's like, why not? But but I swear to God, guys, like some like even a movie like Pontypool. I don't know if you guys have seen it. The Bruce McDonald film. I love yeah. that movie because it all takes place in a radio station. I was about to bring it up. I was, uh, it was on my mind as we were talking about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Play Misty for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that said, do you think that uh, the, the fog stands the test of time? I'm going to say yes, only because there was a remake and everyone I know who watched a remake says the remake is pure garbage. So this movie, 40 years later, is still better than a movie that was made decades later. So I'm going to say yes. Yeah, I'm going to say yes as well. I mean, I think that uh, it it feels a little uneven when you watch it. But honestly, like I just had I had so much fun watching it um, and I've already been recommending it to a bunch of other people who I know love John Carpenter, but have lapsed on this movie in particular. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. It's great fun. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful John Carpenter movie that uh, for me at least was sort of underlooked at. You know, you know, I don't know if you guys agree, but there's one scene we haven't spoken about and it's a scene early on in the movie when the fog rolls into town and all of a sudden there's a series of like weird moments happening just right around midnight. So you hear like, for example, the honking of car horns and, and the sliding of furniture and everything just start, starts to go bonkers. And I feel like that specific scene, which lasts like maybe a good five minutes feels like it came out of a Steven Spielberg film, like close encounters of the third kind. And even or like the way it's shot or poltergeist. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I love it. I love that whole like that's all uh, to me like part of that big weird long beautiful opening like in the gas station and all that stuff. Like it's so gorgeous. It's like it's it's great. It's fantastic. And the guy stealing orange juice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought he was I assumed he was going to get it. Yeah, it's a it's a good I think this movie definitely I don't think it's boring. I think that even people with short attention spans can get this movie. It's an 89 minute movie. And I think you'll be people. Most people will be hooked immediately from that opening and that ghost story, because I think it's effectively done even by modern standards. And, after that, any of the little weird, like late 1970s, early 1980s stuff that might normally turn somebody off from watching an old movie, I think is compensated for by the, the jump scares, which people love. And as evident by the fact that modern horror movies can't hardly contain themselves from jump scares. Only they do it horribly because they do it with loud music and these like screeches that are ridiculous sound mixes of ghosts, you know, doing these horrifying, whatever yowls, John Carpenter's jump scares, other than towards the end, the last two jump scares have this kind of like weird ghostly sound, but it's not a screech or anything. It's kind of like a, I don't know what it is. It's, it's a raspy kind of sound. 
But before that, I was I paid close attention my second time through. His jump scares never involve a musical sting. And they usually just involve like diegetic sound <laughs> that's just played a little bit. Maybe it's louder, like a, like a box falling falling open, right? A locker falling open, like that's supposed to be, or or just uh, a Jamie Lee Curtis's scream when the body falls on her after that. There isn't a musical sting that accompanies it that tells you you are supposed to be shocked right now. Instead, it's just stuff that happens and it feels normal, like the priest coming out of the shadows, which is totally ridiculous when you think about why would he be sitting in the shadows just while this woman just is calling his name and walking in front of him. But there's no musical sting there. And in your brain, you probably think, yeah, of course there was one because I, that was a jump scare. I was I was shocked by that. But there isn't one. He just steps out of the shadows and grabs her shoulder and, and startles her. There's nothing extra that Carpenter needs to do in order to make you jump. And I think people would absolutely jump out of their seats multiple times during this. And without the assistance, the, the audio assistance that's normally provided in these movies. Have you guys but, ever seen that video clip of the six people playing basketball. So there's three people in white shirts and white shorts and three people in black uh, T-shirts and black shorts. And so they're passing a ball back and forth. And so they tell you, you watch, you watch the clip and they want you to count the number of times the uh, team in white passes the ball. Have you guys seen this? No. Yes, I have. Yes. Okay, it's amazing. So, so you, you're, you, so basically, the, the whole, the whole exercise is: I need you to tell me how many times the team in white passes the ball. And so, you're going to, what are you going to do? You're going to focus on the three people who are part of the white team, dressed all in white, and count the number of times they pass the ball. Right. So mm-hmm. when the when the clip ends, I'm going to ask you, what did you think about the gorilla? And you're going to be like, what gorilla? And so in the clip, there's a gorilla who walks in the middle of the frame, waves at the camera, and then walks out of frame. But because the gorilla is dressed also in these dark black colors, and it's a gorilla with dark brown hair, and because you're focused specifically on the three people dressed in white passing a ball, trying to count the number of times they pass the ball, you don't see the gorilla who's dead center in the middle of the frame. I'm telling you, check it out. It could be on YouTube. It's it's amazing. And so it's it's one of these tricks that a lot of filmmakers use where they try to compose their shots and specifically place people and objects in certain positions because they want the audience to focus on something, right? It could be a mm-hmm. color. It could be it could be uh, the actress or the actor. It could be the background, the foreground, whatever it is. And so they play around with the framing of the shots. And the best filmmakers do it and a lot of them just do it. It's it's like instinct, right? A lot of them actually purposely plan it, and some, some for the best of the best, it's just instinct. But they just know how to set the camera and frame the shot and compose it in a way where it will catch the audience off guard. And in this sense, I think John Carpenter proves it because you're right. He does not use a musical cue. It's not it's not a jump scare designed by loud sounds. It's a jump scare designed by good direction. Yep. Because a lot of times it's just movement, and you're just not expecting movement from that that particular place. And like I say, in my brain, the the first time I saw it, I was like, "Were there musical cues there?" Because I don't remember them, but I, I just automatically assumed there were because you're so conditioned nowadays that the those little th- those little stings come in every single time, every single time. I mean, you can't watch a movie trailer without seeing you know thirty of them. It seems like. 
Um, but yeah, they're, they aren't there. And only in the very, the last couple with the ghosts, when they reach out and grab, you know, uh, the nanny, for instance, there, it's not a musical, uh, cue, but it is kind of like a sound effect. Like I said, it's a raspy thing. It's not, it's not one of the normal ones that we hear the, the yowling screech or whatever, but, um, yeah, most of the time he plays it really, really straight and it's super effective. Um, all right, so the final thing. Okay, I, I think we can agree that it's going to stand the test of time. However, it, would it be considered by Howard Hawks to be one of Carpenter's idols? Would it be considered a great movie? Does it pass the Howard Hawks test of having three great scenes and no bad ones? Huh, I know. I was thinking about this already. Um, it certainly, it definitely has three great scenes, but um, it. Eh. I don't know. I'm going to defer to you guys on this, I think. Uh, I mean, it's got some clunkers in the mix. What do you guys think? What, what, which one do you think is a clunker? Well, they all have some redeeming qualities to them. That's why I was, I was trying, I was sort of like searching through my mental record to, to think of anything that really stuck out as a bad scene. And honestly, maybe you hit it as the very end. The, the end scene is not good. Um, yeah, the end scene is bad, actually. And that's a really bad place to have a bad scene. So that's pretty problematic. Um, that, that's, that sticks out as a bad scene. I guess it depends on what we think is a great scene, right? Mm -hmm. Like the opening of Inglorious Bastards is a great scene for me. Like that's a great scene. Like one of the greatest sure. scenes of the past 10 years type thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the fog has a scene as great as, for example, that scene. But but I think it has really, really good scenes. But I think at the end of the day, Marty is right. That scene that we complained about happens at the end of the film. And the last thing I would want as a filmmaker is to have the audience walk away with a bad taste in their mouth because the last 10 seconds or the last two minutes of my film – just kind of like fell apart because I decided to put some some stupid fake out twist ending that was not necessary. So I'm actually going to say no. It unfortunately does not pass the Howard Hawks test. Yeah, I, I was kind of alluding to that as well. Uh, no, it does not pass the Howard Hawks test. It's not one of Carpenter's uh, absolute stone cold cold masterpieces, but it is. It's it, and because of that end, yeah, you do walk away with a little bit. There might be some confusion. Or at least it's not as satisfying as you'd want the ending to be to this film. However, of course, it is a very good film. I think it's still a very entertaining one. Um, it's kind of a, a well-crafted B-movie, you know, ghost story kind of movie is. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I think that keeps it from being a great movie. That and just some little little oddball stuff along the way. But no, no, no other scene in particular. I can't point out another scene in particular that is bad because it usually does have some good character stuff in it. Uh, if nothing else. So, um, yeah, uh, but that scene alone merits. <laughs> it's just in the wrong place. Wrong place. Uh, all right. Well, guys, that about wraps up our discussion of The Fog. Uh, Marty, where can we find you online? Oh, uh, well, for the purposes of, of this uh, podcast, probably largely just writing uh on Goomba Stomp, generally about Nintendo and video games, occasionally about film and television, though if you look up my name, Marty, and put the word stuff after it, that's where I am on social media, martystuff.com, that kind of thing. Yeah, and you can find me uh, at Sword Cinema. I barely tweet it all these days, but I do sometimes lurk. Uh, I would love for somebody to tweet 
something about John Carpenter. Let's get into a John Carpenter discussion. Uh, I'm going to probably watch a bunch more of his movies just because I've kind of gotten into a Carpenter role right now. Um, but yeah, otherwise, uh, you can find me over at GoombaStomp.com, of course, uh, and uh, co-hosting with Rick, uh, our Nintendo podcast, The N Express, every week. And Rick, where can we find you? You can find me over at GoombaStomp.com, and uh, you can check out my article about The Fog. And I'm writing about movies, TV shows, video games, and wrestling over on the website. I run the official Twitter account for GoombaStomp. I don't really have my own personal Twitter account, but the Twitter account handle is GoombaStompMag. Yeah, and of course, uh, you know, definitely give us a rating on iTunes. Check us out on there or, uh, you know write some comments, post a comment on the website. We love hearing from anybody. Um, yeah, definitely. Leave us something. We like hearing from you guys. That should do it. Uh, we will be back next week. We'll see you then. Something is moving in the fog. Who's there? Something not quite human. Who is that? In Halloween, John Carpenter created a night of absolute fear. Now, he has conjured an evil so intense, not even the dawn can drive it away. The Fog, a study in unrelenting terror. Rated R. Thank you.